John, lead pastor, Noel Peepcrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plan started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. We'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Hey, so, uh, you know, this week's, uh, this week's text, it got me thinking, because uh, there's some hard words in this text, you know? Uh, and, and so it got me thinking, what's the worst thing you've ever been called? What's the worst thing you've ever been called? I was trying to think about that. My wife's called me a couple things. Like, I don't know if those are the worst things. Sorry, can't give up family secrets, can you? Uh, but what's the worst thing you've ever been called? I mean, is it worse than a brood of vipers? Have you ever been called anything worse than a brood of vipers? How about evil? Have you ever been called evil? You're just evil. Man, this passage has it all, doesn't it? <laughs> but wait, it gets worse, you know? Uh, Jesus says in this passage, he says even harder things in this passage than those hard words. He says that we'll be held accountable for every word we've spoken. That's even harder to hear than, than to hear the, uh, a really harsh word like being called a brood of vipers. He says we'll be acquitted or condemned by our words. Man, that's tough to hear. I don't know about you, but, but uh, I, I don't know that I really want to stand acquitted or condemned based on all my words. Some of them haven't been so great. You know? So this, this ain't a, a, a peachy passage. It's... Uh, it's, it's full of rebuttal, it's full of rebuke, full of correction, but there's life in this passage, right? And this is one of the ways that sometimes the hard words of Jesus soften our hearts and actually bring life, you know? We wouldn't want to have soft words and be left to our hard hearts, right? It's really good. Jesus, in his kindness, he gives hard words to soften our hearts, and that's what brings life. And also, even though this passage can feel sort of hard, that we'll be acquitted or condemned based on our words, there's hope for us. Because in Jesus, we have the recipe for uh, making our tree good. We're going to talk about what that looks like, what, it, what is a good tree, why is it important, but we have an anecdote for bad fruit in Jesus. If, uh, if you're like me this morning and you're starting to think of all the times that you've had some problem with your tongue, or maybe it's another behavior, What's another behavior that you just can't seem to get on top of? Here it's the tongue, but it could be any other behavior. I just want to say that there's hope for you today because Jesus shows us the root of the fruit our tree is producing. There's a root that's producing a certain type of fruit, and in Jesus, we have the answer. So in order to really understand what's going on in this passage, because it's pretty long, and there's some other hard stuff in this passage, the, the last paragraph isn't the only hard part about this passage, so we need to take a look at the context in which Jesus says what he says here. I mean, why would he call religious leaders? He's calling out religious leaders. The spiritually serious are the ones he's calling a brood of vipers. He's calling these guys evil men with bad hearts. And uh, so let's take a look at the context. If you, if you want to flip around, this, this story occurs elsewhere in Mark chapter 3. So this isn't the only gospel account of this story. 
Uh, in fact, the miracle story that we see at the very beginning of this passage, the blind man uh, who is also mute and possessed with a demon, this guy's got some issues, can we all agree? We see a healing of a similar man in Matthew 9, 32 through 34. So you can flip back if you want to do that. But here's the key question today. What is this spirit at work in Jesus? This is the source of the controversy that we see here, right? And I've told you that we're starting to, we're starting to see the controversy get flared up between Jesus and the religious leaders. And uh, here's a great example. What we have today is a spirit controversy. What is the spirit at work in Jesus? See, the crowd, the crowd sees the miracle, and they notice that this is indeed the son of David. The crowd sees the miracle, and they notice this is the one. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King we've been waiting for. And that phrase, Son of David, that they use, I mean, this is a reference to Old Testament uh, prophecy. Uh, Nathan, I think, was the first in 2 Samuel. He said that the Messiah will come from the line of David in that passage. We even saw the lineage in chapter 1. Jesus' lineage is tied back to David's line. So the people saying, Son of David, is to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And remember, Matthew is writing mostly to a Jewish audience, wanting to convince them of the deity, the divinity of Jesus. The crowd sees it right. But the spiritually serious, uh, they don't see him as the son of David. That's not what they call him. In fact, they attribute the healing to the prince of demons, effectively. Right? They use that word, Beelzebul, or I, I heard several different pronunciations. I was wondering if we could just call him Beetlejuice together this morning. Can we do that? It'd be way easier. But remember, you know, in this gospel, we've seen time and time again, it's the spiritually serious who totally miss Jesus and his deity. The crowd seem to get Jesus. They recognize him as a son of David here, but it's the spiritually serious that miss Jesus. In fact, in this passage, it appears that the reason they miss him is because they're actually threatened by him. The religious leaders appear to be threatened by Jesus' work and ministry. They've got what you might call a religious spirit. They've followed all the rules and regulations. They're very serious spiritual people, these Pharisees. They've kept the law to a T. Even more so, they've made rules to protect their keeping of the law. They are righteous. They are the ultimate self-righteous among us. But even in their righteous deeds, we learn and we know, we've seen that they have the wrong heart. And that's what Jesus is coming after today. And so they stand here, these Pharisees, these spiritually serious. They stand between the works of Jesus and the hearts of the people by telling him that his works are the product of Satan. This is really a serious accusation, is it not? To tell Jesus, the Messiah, that you're working on behalf of Beelzebul. So let's dig into the story here. Verse 22, we're going we're gonna to see the spiritual freedom that Jesus comes to bring. And we're going to see how spiritual freedom restores sight and sound to this demon-possessed man. It says in verse 22, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him, because that's what Jesus does. He heals, doesn't he? And he heals him so that he could talk and see. That's interesting. He healed him so that he could talk and see. The first part of the healing is the exorcism. He heals him spiritually, and the result is now he can talk, and now he can see. 
I found it quite profound that when Jesus heals a spirit, the result is the ability to see and to hear correctly. How often have we heard already, he who has ears, let him hear. There's a gift in that, the ability to see Jesus rightly. And when we're spiritually healed, we have that ability, that that ability to, to see and to talk. There's also something we've got to see here, you guys. There's a spiritual force in the world, is there not? You know, I've been told that in Western culture, we're less uh, aware of the spiritual realm. You know, like maybe if you've ever been to Latin America, uh, South America, maybe even some of the uh, some of the African uh, tribalism can be. You know, they they acknowledge the spiritual, don't they? Those cultures tend to be way more like spiritually oriented. The, The presence of evil spirits is like part of daily life. In the West, we we almost like just kind of act like those things don't exist most days. I think, if we're honest. But we see here in this passage that the spiritual realm is real. There's spiritual darkness that causes problems with people. Here, in this case, the spiritual force is actually the cause of illness, the injury, the impairment that this man is suffering. And I just want to say that that's not always the case, right? It's not always the case that your affliction is caused by an evil spirit. We know just in general that that these are all parts of the consequences of, of just sin, general sin in our lives. So not always does being hurt or injured or sick mean that you've got a demon inside of you. But sometimes it does, and we ought to be aware. Jesus was aware of the spiritual realm. So sometimes it's spiritual, but not always is it spiritual, but sometimes it is. So let's be aware of the spiritual. See, the the other thing that we learn about the spiritual realm is that Jesus has authority over even the spirit of the world. And when he brings his kingdom... He comes to take out parts of the spiritual world. Jesus is the king, the ultimate king of even the spiritual realm. Even the realm of darkness is under the authority of Jesus. That's pretty powerful. We've got to see that there is a spiritual realm. There is a dark realm. And we've got to see that Jesus, our king, has authority over that realm. We have to have both pictures, right? There is a spiritual realm of darkness but Jesus has authority over that realm. He does not deny the spiritual realm. In fact, Jesus comes and he aims right at it. He pinpoints the immediate source of the pain and the brokenness. So next we see two responses to Jesus. I've already alluded to this. We have the response of the crowd. What do they say? What do they say? Verse 23, all the people were astonished. They were amazed. And, and said, uh, I'm sorry, and said out loud, could this be the son of David? So the crowd was astonished when they saw what happened. So much so that they said, this has to be the Messiah. This must be the one that we've been waiting for. They use messianic language. This is a declaration of the Christship of Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard this, verse 24, they said, it is only by Betelgeuse, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The Pharisees' response, totally different. Because they're threatened, because they're afraid of the position that they might lose, perhaps, they cannot acknowledge that Jesus is the son of David. It was so obvious to the crowds, but not to the Pharisees. And so they do the opposite. They actually attribute the work of Jesus, the healing, they attribute to demons. They accuse Jesus 
the son of God, of using Satan to drive out demons. That's pretty crazy. That's like, that's like a brash claim. So you see what the Pharisees have done here, right? The crowds, they got it. They saw it. This is the son of David. The Pharisees did not see it, would not see it, did not get it. And they call him demon-possessed himself. They say, you're working for Satan. In their fear, they could not celebrate what had just happened. So we have this polarizing response. Jesus always created a polarizing response. The life and work of Jesus always puts you in one camp or the other. It demands a verdict. So what does Jesus say? Verse 25, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household dividing against itself will not stand. Don't miss this first line. Jesus knew their what? Their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. This is where we get the Christian belief that Jesus was omniscient. I practiced saying that word several times at home. It looks like omniscience, you know, so I wanted to go really well with the pronunciation. Omniscient. This is one of the character traits of Jesus. He knows everything. You can't get anything by Jesus. Kind of cool fact about Jesus. Would you like to know everything? I don't know that I would like to know everything that people are thinking. But Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. Jesus goes to common sense. How many of you like common sense arguments, right? And I know I've heard that common sense is not so common, but it seems to be a lot easier than some of the like highfalutin philosophical uh, I don't know, phrasing, wording that we can often get into. He uses a common sense argument, and it's actually, it's in the form of a parable. Good old Jesus, you're looking for an answer, and Jesus tells a story. This is just the way that he does it, but this one isn't that hard to understand. See, Jesus challenges their spirit theology at center. He comes right at their spirit theology, and he says, if Jesus, if me, Jesus, if I, not me, sorry, that, that felt weird, if I, Jesus, he says, am, am removing evil, then how can I be using the prince of darkness to do it? Even a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's common sense, Jesus says. How can I be removing evil, using evil to remove evil, right? Make sense? It's just common sense. How could I be doing that? That'd be putting the kingdom of darkness against itself, Another interesting fact in this story is that there are, or there were, evidently, healings that were attributed to Satan. Did you ever think about that? Like, can Satan, does Satan have any power? I think here we learn that Satan does have power. He did have power. Evidently, there were healings taking place even in that time that Satan could take credit for. You can see why Satan would want to use his power to heal and distract, right? Look at the good that I've done for you we got to be careful, and the historic church has always been careful, not to credit every healing or miracle to God. Again, there's a spiritual realm. The reality of spiritual warfare, the reality of spiritual darkness is something that we have to take into consideration. 
So spiritual power is evidently not unique to Christ. Evidently, Satan and his demons have some power here in this world. But see, we learn in verse 28 that where the Spirit works, the kingdom comes. Here's what it says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We use this language sometimes. I use this language a lot. You know, one of the reasons we planted this church is because we believe God wants to see an extension of his kingdom here in Exeter. What does that mean? Well, it alludes to this idea that we believe that there's a spiritual kingdom of this earth and a heavenly kingdom that Jesus Christ came to bring to this earth. There's two kingdoms, you guys, that are at war with one another. So some people would attribute these healings potentially to Satan. Jesus says, how could it be Satan casting out evil? That wouldn't make any sense. And we learn that where the Spirit works, the kingdom comes. Where people are being renewed, excuse me, where people are being renewed, like here, the blight that's, I'm sorry, the sight that's being given to the blind. Where people are being renewed by Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. This is one of the ways that we see the kingdom of God coming. Two facts about a Christian worldview on Satan's presence. Wherever faith in Christ has not yet occurred, is occupied country. Wherever faith in Christ has not yet occurred is occupied country. This is Satan's domain. But wherever Christ has produced faith in himself, we have liberated country. Jesus comes and he brings his kingdom and he sets us free. This is one of the results of coming to Jesus. Freedom, liberation. We must not think of Satan too little. You guys, we must not think of him too little. We can't ignore that Satan works in our world. We have to pay attention to be on guard. Satan is at work in and around us, but we must also not think too much of Satan and think and get scared and think that we have no power in Jesus. There's a spiritual reality in this world. There's a a darkness but there's also power and authority in Jesus to conquer the darkness. So we must not think of Satan too little, but we must not think of him too much so that we forget the power of Christ in us. The power of Christ in us, in us who believe, the power of Christ is in us to have authority over this dark spiritual realm. This is what the Bible says about this idea. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible says, take heart. In this world, you will have troubles, but I have overcome the world. There is darkness. There is a spiritual realm, a spiritual enemy, but Jesus comes with authority, and whenever he brings his kingdom, we see regeneration. We see renewal. In verse 29, it uses this this, uh, metaphor of Satan being tied up. Jesus says, the first thing I got to do if I'm going to take over the evil man's house, is to tie him up so that I can take all his possessions. So Satan is at once tied up, but he's also still able to tempt us. Do you remember that even Jesus was tempted by Satan uh, in the desert, right? Now Jesus was able to rebuke Satan using the Holy Scriptures, but Satan tempted even Jesus. So Satan is at once tied up and yet still able to tempt us. Our mistake is in believing that Satan isn't here or in believing that he, I'm sorry, my throat is really scratchy. Does anyone have water? 
<clears throat> so our mistake is either in believing that Satan is not here altogether or in believing that he is here and being afraid and thinking that Jesus doesn't have the power to overcome him. The advance of the kingdom of heaven upon the kingdom of earth begins with tying Satan up. This is what Christ came to do. Satan's been tied up, you guys. Satan has been tied up. He may tempt you, but he has no authority over you. In Jesus Christ, we have authority over the kingdom of darkness. Let's move on to verse 30. This is like uh, some really challenging three verses. We see the big no-no here in these three verses. Thank you so much, Shauna. It says in verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Look, you, you cannot be neutral towards Jesus, can you? You're either with him or you're against him. That's what Jesus said. You're either with him or you're against him. This is like real like team type language here, isn't it? Sports, it feels like to me, whoever's not with, if you're not with me, you're against me. Let's go. All for one, one for all. This is what Jesus says. You're either with me or you're against me. There's no neutrality. His life and his work demands a decision. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. These are good things. Who wants a way? Who wants a truth? Who wants a life? But no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus demands an exclusive decision. Look, if you do not gather with Jesus, it says here that you scatter from him. There is no neutral approach to him. Matthew Henry, a great commentator, he says this, Christ expects and requires from those who are with him that they gather with him. That they not only gather to him themselves, but do all they can in their places to gather others to him. To gather to Christ is to acknowledge his lordship. This is what we see the, the Pharisees unable to do. Standing in the way, actually, of people gathering to Jesus. They saw the crowd's response, son of David, and the Pharisees tried to dissuade them. This is heavy, 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 bad, bad behavior here on the part of the Pharisees. In verse 31, it says, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The passage starts, and so I tell you, because of what I just said, I'm going to tell you something else. What does he start with? Every kind of sin can be forgiven. Just some sin? No, every kind of sin can be forgiven. We might be prone to get hung up on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what that means. Oh no, don't commit that one because that can't be forgiven. Why don't you get your mind back towards a Jesus who says every kind of sin can be forgiven. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the big picture perspective of God. He forgives every kind of sins. What sins will he forgive? Every stinking kind. When does he forgive us? When does he forgive us? When does he forgive us? He forgives us when we repent. And that's why it's his kindness that calls us to repentance. 
Through repentance, we have the forgiveness of sins. Scripture is clear. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But Jesus says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So you got to be thinking, oh my goodness, what is blasphemy against the Spirit? Oh my goodness, what is blasphemy against the Spirit? I don't want to do that. That's like the big no-no. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence from God, for God, sorry. That's what blasphemy is by definition. And look, if you're sitting here today and you're worried that maybe you've committed the, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I think it's safe to say if you're worried that you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you have not committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? The spirit of this sin is an unworried, like, adamancy, right? Being adamant in a way that's not worried. To totally reject the divinity of Jesus is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To stand in the way of other people's faith in Jesus as the Christ, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In repentance, we have forgiveness of every kind of sin. The only sin that's unforgivable is to reject Jesus as Lord. D.F. Bruner says this, in the final analysis, Jesus' teaching about the unpardonable sin is no different from all his warnings of judgment. Rejection of Jesus' messianic divine identity invites damnation. But remember, where there is true repentance and a recognition of the deity of Jesus, sin is forgiven of God, uh, by God. Where there is repentance, sin is forgiven. Jesus is faithful to forgive us. He's faithful and he's just. I love it. 1 John 1.9. He is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess. And he doesn't just leave us there. He also cleanses us. It's beautiful. The picture of God that we see here is one who's generous in his forgiveness. But the Pharisees rejected him. And so this is why he, he makes the warning that perhaps they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Moving on, uh, I love the climax of this passage. I think you'll like it too. The last thing that we see is Jesus' command to make your tree good. And I think I have a slide for this, Gunner. I got a couple slides actually, but I forgot to mention. Verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. We got any, like, fruit experts out there who could just, like, see a bud and, or a leaf? Tyler, you, you're probably like this. You could just see, like, a, a leaf and know, like, that's a peach and what variety or whatever. I don't know if, if it gets that, like, in-depth. I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone here talking about farming. But Jesus gives a tree metaphor, doesn't he? And we've, we've seen this metaphor before. Chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus used this metaphor, good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit, to help us learn and be uh, warned of... Uh, false prophets, false teachers. So we see a metaphor here. Jesus used parables. He used metaphors. Your high school English teacher would be so happy to see all the, all the literary devices Jesus uses. Jesus, can we just take a minute to appreciate Jesus? Sometimes I've, I've heard people say, like, why can't he just say it a little bit more plainly? You know, like people want to have like a, a C-spot run version of Jesus' teaching. You know what I'm saying? Who's glad that Jesus used like pictures and stories to help communicate. They actually like stick with us. They like touch our hearts in a way that's different than C-Spot Run. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't use C-spot run styles of writing. So in this metaphor, we see that fruit specifically is our speech, but the tree is our being or our character. This is the metaphor that Jesus uses here. The heart, our heart, our spirit is the root, and our language is the fruit. And that's really cool because it rhymes nicely. The root produces the fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here with this tree metaphor. Check out this quote, another one from Matthew Henry. Men's language discovers what country they're of. We've been talking some of kingdom this morning. Men's language discovers what kingdom they are of. And I wonder, what kingdom are you of? What country are you from? What does your behavior, your language, your speech say about the kingdom that you're from? So we come to uh, some, some more hard words. Verse 34, uh, these, these words are directed at the Pharisees, the spiritually serious. I kind of, I mean, I know these are hard words and I should take them like very seriously, but I kind of get excited when Jesus gets like, ah, you know, and just like gets, gets after people a little bit. Maybe I'm, I'm a little tired of the like super like soft Jesus that, that was on the flannel boards when I was growing up. So Jesus kind of loses it right here. Jesus always got angry at the right things, you know? The things that were really deep and serious, Jesus got really angry about those things. And so he comes after the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Brood of vipers. I've not yet heard that one used in my house. Thankful for that. My kids have called each other a lot of mean things, but never a brood of vipers until today. I don't know. Hopefully they're not listening. So Jesus taught us, I mean, this is kind of confusing because just like a few passages earlier, we heard about the silent justice of Jesus, how he's with, he withdraws and he doesn't engage a fight. Like he had a chance after the Sabbath controversy to really come after the Pharisees, but he didn't then, Right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear like, you know, what Jesus thought about hatred and anger and turn the other cheek and don't even call your brother an idiot, right? Well, so what's this? Is brood of vipers okay, but idiot liar is not okay? It seems as if in this context, in this context it's okay. Anyway, <clears throat> perhaps there's a time to be harsh. Perhaps there's a time to be harsh. If you have a perfect discernment like Jesus, maybe you too will know exactly when to be harsh. If you don't have the perfect discernment of Jesus, maybe we should be less harsh. Notice how I turned that from you to we. Maybe I should be less, less harsh at times. This is kind of a difficult principle to imitate. Jesus, perfect in discernment. Me, we, not so perfect in our discernment. So most of the time, Jesus was gentle. Most of the time, he was silent, peace-loving. But here he comes at the Pharisees. Why? Well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's a big deal, isn't it? Dissuading others from believing in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Son of David. This is serious offense. And so Jesus comes strong after them. He calls him a brood of vipers. <clears throat> Jesus goes on to say, how can you say what is right when what you are is so wrong? This is the accusation Jesus has against the Pharisees. How do you think that you can say what is right when I know what's in your heart is so wrong. Like, imagine for a second. 
calling the religious leaders, the spiritually serious, a brood of vipers. These are the most righteous humans that the world had ever seen. The Jewish world was totally impressed with the spiritually serious Pharisees, and yet Jesus comes in, he knows their hearts, and he says, you don't impress me. How can you even say what is good when your hearts are evil? Jesus knew everything. He knew their hearts, and so he's coming against their hearts here. He says to them, you can do all the right things and yet still lack the heart of a disciple. What? Like, just wrap your mind around that for a little bit. We get so caught up, so tempted to make faith about doing all the right things, like coming to church every Sunday, sitting in the front row, saying your prayers every night before bed, not cussing, being kind, even when you're mad on the inside. We're so tempted, we're so prone to make it about our behaviors. And Jesus says, it's not about your behaviors, it's about your heart. Does Jesus care about our behaviors? Absolutely. But out of the mouth, the heart speaks. You gotta get to the root if you wanna have the good fruit. We need a band. I, I, I saw a preacher on YouTube this week that had a drummer sitting there and he would just go like this. And the guy would hit the cymbal. We'll work on that for next week. <laughs> oh, man. So, so this, is, this should resonate. Has anyone, has anyone ever tried really, really, really hard to stop doing something they knew they shouldn't be doing anymore? Whether it's like biting your fingernails or picking your nose or, you know, or, or some sort of sin, something more serious than biting your fingernails or, or picking your nose, right? So yeah, thanks. Smoking cigarettes, yeah, something like that, you know. It can be really hard to, to modify our behavior, right? We call it, what's the phrase we have? You're white-knuckling it, right? I'm here to tell you today that Jesus, uh, he's got a strategy for your behavior modification, but it's not the white-knuckle approach. There's a different approach. There's something on the inside that's got to change. There's transformation that has to happen. Jesus says you need a new heart, not just new behaviors, Jesus says that it's actually your being that I'm more concerned about than your doing. Jesus was more about the being, the character, what's on the inside, the condition of your soul than he was about your doing because he knew that your being will lead to your doing. A good man, it says in this passage, I'm sorry, in this passage it says a good man does good from the overflow of his heart, from what's been stored up in the heart. Good fruit forms on a good tree. Good people are the result of a good reservoir of the heart. It's not that your actions don't matter to Jesus. That's not at all. We've, we've been studying how Jesus like, cared about our behavior. He cared about our obedience. He cares even now about our obedience. So it's not that your actions don't matter. It's not that your doing has no impact. It does. But your actions, your doing, your behavior... They're the result of the condition of your heart. You will naturally do whatever is in your heart to do. You will naturally do whatever is in your heart to do. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Change your heart, change your behavior without the white knuckle approach. No change in the heart, no change in behavior. No change in the heart, no change in behavior. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to get to the root if you want to produce different fruit. If your fruit feels mushy or sour or rotten, you've got to go to the tree. 
James uh, said it this way in chapter 3. James, you know, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote a book in the Bible. James chapter 3, he says this. He says, no man can tame the tongue. Speaking specifically here to speech. Man, it's hard to tame our behavior. It's hard when things get out of whack. No level of behavior modification, of trying harder, of buckling down, can tame the tongue. That's what James would say. No man can tame the tongue. Because the tongue is not driven by the will, but by the heart. You can't change your behaviors without a changed heart. If you want to tame your tongue, if you want to change your behavior, you're going to have to subdue your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Consider this phrase, the phrase self-expression. Express. Ex-press. To press out. Self-expression. It's the expressions of our mouth that are pressed out of the heart. Self-expression. What we see on the outside is what's been pressed out of our insides. Have you ever heard that analogy? Like, what happens, what do you get when you squeeze an orange? Orange juice. Really simple answer. Why do you get orange juice instead of grape juice or apple juice or beer? <laughs> because that's what's inside an orange. Orange juice is what's inside an orange. And so it is with our actions and with our words. Whatever's on the inside is what comes out of us. Whatever uh, comes out of us is what's expressed. It's being pressed out. So we've got to become good trees so that we can bring forth good fruit. If you want to have good fruit, you've got to become a good tree. Remember, a good root leads to good fruit. St. Augustine said this, the man must be changed first, that his works may be changed. The man must be changed first before the things that the man does will actually change. So need some extra motivation uh, to change? Need some extra motivation to take care of this tree? Let's look at verse 36 and 37. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Look, in the end, we all give account for our behavior. This is the truth, the reality of what Scripture teaches. We're all brought to account on Judgment Day. And what we've said and what we've done will be used to either acquit us, to let us off and give us freedom, or to condemn us. In the end, we'll all give account for our behavior, specifically here, our words. Proverbs 21, 18 says this. Maybe you've heard this before. The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Life and death. Why should this matter to us? Because the tongue holds the power of life and death. This is a big deal. What we say and what we do, it's a big deal. It has the power of life and death. You've heard the phrase, uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Is that true? No, it's not true. Words have the power, according to the Proverbs, of life and death. What comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our hearts has a power of life and death. And on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable. In a world that wants to tell you, hey, you do you, or uh, all good people go to heaven, Jesus says, by your words, you're either acquitted or condemned. There's life in heeding the warnings of Jesus. Remember, it's his kindness that brings us to repentance. Hard words, soft hearts. That's what we're after this morning. Well, let me bring this to a close. You know, uh, I'm going to start by telling a story. 
I'm going to start the closing by telling a story. That's when you know the sermon's getting long. This week, I was thinking a little bit, uh, well, I had, a, I had a situation Friday where uh, one of my kids, whose name I will not mention, one of my kids was getting into my new vehicle, and he had food, Mexican food, rice and beans, enchilada, and he slipped and dumped it on the front of my seat. And what, come, what came out of my mouth when he did that was the fruit of the tree on the inside of me. Not super happy to report that I was uh, not proud of my words. And I was honestly, even this morning, I, I was just thinking, like, why do I say those things? Like, why does that come out of me? And I, it was even one of those moments where I was like, man, what's the point of even apologizing at this point? You know, have you ever had it? I know you guys are better than me, but if, have you ever had one of those things where it's just like at some point you just, like I repented up to a point, but then there's just like come a point where like, how can I keep apologizing with a straight face? Like I, it just keeps happening. I don't know if you've ever. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know if you've ever had something like that where you're just, I just can't stop. I just keep doing the thing that I don't want to do. No, like, amount of behavior modification or, like, apologizing seems to work. I don't know. Maybe it's something else for you, not just your words. Maybe there's a behavior that just keeps coming up out of you. I was wondering this morning if you would consider with me, like, how's your tree looking? What's inside of me that gets so upset that I say things I don't believe I should ever say when something's so small? happens. And it just, it brings me to, to the key application this morning. Like, how can we tend to our tree? How can we tend to our tree? How can we work on this? I, again, I'm not a farmer, but I, I did plant a lot of stuff on our property. And I know that some of it lived and some of it did not live. And the stuff that got water and sun had good soil. The stuff that avoided my roundup. The stuff that avoided the, the, harm, the harmful effects of the frost. Like, there's a lot of things you got to do to take care of a tree, but there are things that can be done. The stuff that I really nurtured, the stuff that I've really taken care of, it's lived. It's doing great. It's flourishing. There's some things that we can do to help take care of our tree. I had a, a friend, a landlord at one point in time, a cherry farmer. He was joking to me about all the work goes into taking care of cherries. You can't just, like, have one cherry tree. Did you know that? It's got to be, like, cross-pollinated with the right kind of, you know, and he was like, you know, these cherry trees, they, they produce great fruit, but man, they all have like their own personal masseuse, you know? But man, if you want a tree to produce good fruit, you've got to take care of it. Good fruit is high maintenance. I'm here to tell you, good fruit is high maintenance. You've got to take care of your tree. Um, I'm going to share a little uh, idea here um, that is actually Megan's idea. I feel like the Lord, we were praying in summer 2021, we just invited people into this church, and we were like, What's the next season of life for us as a church? You know, we were like in between actually meeting um, and we just kind of gathered, getting to know each other as a church family, really, in a lot of ways. And we were trying to commit to, to getting to know each other, to growing as a family and to prayer. And uh, Megan came up with these three words. I think the Spirit put these, uh, these words on her heart. If you don't like it, don't blame Megan. I shared it. Maybe I shouldn't have. I thought it was good. This idea, go to the next slide, Gunner. This idea, uh, so these are three ideas for taking care of your tree. The idea of behold, beholding Jesus, step number one. We've got to see Jesus rightly. 
In this story, we had two groups. We had the crowds who saw Jesus rightly as the Son of God. And so what did their hearts do? In astonishment, they worshipped him. They proclaimed the truth about who he is. They say, this is Jesus. We're astonished. This is amazing. Look what he's done. This is what happens when you behold Jesus rightly. See, the God that you see is the Christian you'll be. Who is God? We've got to behold the living God. A.W. Tozier, a really smart guy who wrote books about God, says this, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. We've got to behold Jesus. We've got to see him rightly. This is step one to taking care of your tree. You've got to see Jesus rightly. You've got to behold him. The crowd saw Jesus as the son of David and they worshiped. But the Pharisees, the spiritually serious, they saw him as Beetlejuice's servant. The second thing is be with. If we're going to take care of our tree, we've got to learn to be with Jesus. Do you get bored in prayer? Do you find yourself falling asleep in prayer? Do you find yourself avoiding prayer because it seems hard or boring or like it's not working? I do sometimes. So it's, you're, you're in safe company. We can admit this. But, but man, what kind of Christians are we if we don't even like to be with Jesus? Like, what are we up to? What kingdom are we trying to advance? We've got to learn to be with Jesus. We've got to learn to be with Jesus. If we're going to take care of our tree, we've got to come into the presence of the resurrected Lord. We have to spend time with him. So how do we, there's all kinds of ways that you could do it. None of them in and of itself will save you, but the heart that's behind trying to be with Jesus is the key. You could get silent. How many of you need to get silent? You might need solitude. All the moms said amen. You might need prayer. Maybe it's fasting that will, that will get you into his presence. I think part of it is corporate worship, right? How many of us get charged up when we come together, singing together, studying the word of God? We need each other. We need songs. We need communion. We need scripture. We need meditation. But we've got to learn to be with Jesus if we're going to take care of our tree. So why do we need to behold Jesus? Why do we need to be with Jesus? Because the end goal is us becoming like Jesus. The end goal for taking care of our tree is that we would be transformed, that we would become like Jesus. This is the key to a healthy tree. Romans 12 says we need to be transformed, not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, when we behold him rightly, when we see him as the son of God, our savior, when we spend time with him, when we're with him, we hear his voice, we learn his ways, we experience his character. When we do those things, we become like him. You cannot see him rightly. You cannot spend time with the living God and not have your life transformed. Jesus transformed fishermen into evangelists by his presence. Behold, be with, become like Jesus. Jim Rohn says it this way. He's not a Bible guy, but he has a great quote that applies to our lives as believers. He said that you're the average product of the five people you spend the most time with. Agreed? You're the average product of the five people you spend the most time with. Here's my advice. Make Jesus one of your five. Make Jesus one of your five and see what you become. But who else can you spend time with to help you become transformed? Who else can you spend time with to up your average? 
That's why we do small groups. That's why you have Christian friends. That's part of why you come to church. You probably all know you could get a better preacher, maybe better worship online, on your couch, in your pajamas this morning. But you're here because it helps. It helps to become like Jesus when we're with people following Jesus. So here's the thing. If you want good fruit, you got to spend some time taking care of your tree. And remember, it's the root that produces the fruit. This morning, uh, I just, I don't know, if, there, if, if you're like, if you're out there this morning and you're like, man, I don't know yet what I want to do with Jesus. I just wanted to invite you that putting your faith in Jesus is the first step in taking care of your tree. If you don't like what's coming out, if you're aware that there's some things being expressed, saying yes to Jesus is the first step in taking care of your tree. And, uh, I just wanted to offer for the rest of you, anybody out here, if you'd like prayer this morning, like, man, I don't like what's coming out of my, uh, like the fruit that's coming out of me, what's coming out of my mouth. I don't like what's being expressed. Um, I can be here to pray for you. I think maybe Megan as well, if, if I have some, anyone else that could stand, come up and, and be willing to pray. Uh, we'd love to pray for you this morning. It could be super simple. It doesn't have to be awkward or weird. Uh, but we'd like to do something about it. Uh, let's, let's close in prayer this morning, then Jake will come up and we'll sing.